Last week, we began a series entitled, Who Are You? We're focusing on the question, is who is this Jesus of Christmas fame? Renee kicked it off last week and did a stellar job in presenting Christ as reconciler. These messages are going to help us to see Jesus through the prism of four descriptions. Now, prism is kind of an interesting thing. There's a picture on the board there that uh, it takes a ray of light that looks like it's one, but once it hits the prism, it diffuses into several other rays of light. Jesus has many names, titles, and descriptions, but most of them come under one of four key roles that are being dealt with in this series. Last week, reconciler, siler, today, king, next week, priest, and on the 22nd, we'll be looking at Jesus as prophet. So this morning, we're going to dig into that one we know as king, and it's perhaps the most unnatural one of them all. How many of you enjoy Christmas? You're like, I mean, I just, you know, I hope, you know, I can do a screen grab after this and, you know, make this a, one of my Christmas cards of me standing in front of all these nice little things here. Of course, my bride's not here. That wouldn't work too good, right? So, but what's not to like, right? I mean... Well, there, yeah, there are some things, the over-commercialization and, you know, putting out, you know, I think next year they're going to start putting out Christmas displays at Labor Day weekend, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I don't care for that too much. But, but this is a time of the year where there are a lot of images of Christ that appear in our lives and culture. Uh, a little baby born in a smelly stable because there was no room for them in the inn. A feeding trough that served as his crib. Hay and straw that formed the mattress upon which he slept. Bleeding sheep and, uh, and lowing cattle became the choir that sang his praise. And lowly shepherds received that angelic announcement of his birth. And when you think about all that, the nativity scenes, what a cute and heartwarming picture and story. But we must never forget, ladies and gentlemen, that the one who was born that first Christmas morning was more than a cute little child. He was and always will be the king of righteous rule. And the main idea this morning, we're going to throw it up on the, board, on the, on the screen. For most Americans, they are more concerned about living like a king than living for a king. Let this sink in a little bit. Most Americans are more concerned about living like a king than for a king. And that's what we're going to unpack together this morning. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. By the way, if you like this passage, it's probably because you're familiar with some of it because of it forming part of the uh, lyrics of Handel's Messiah, that, that music we hear a lot of. It's one of my favorites, you know, the Hallelujah Chorus. Although we need to remember that it was actually uh, written as an Easter pageant, uh, but we, we extract that part of it that kind of really fits into this time of year. And here's what Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. I love this last, the way he finishes it up. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So, Jesus, the king of righteous rule. You know what? A monarchy is a foreign concept in the United States of America. I mean, I mean, think about the Boston Tea Party, right? You know, no taxation without representation. We fought a revolution 
a couple hundred years ago over this whole concept of a monarchy. Our nation was founded as a democratic republic that rebelled against the tyranny of King George III of England. And all of us are familiar with the words of Patrick Henry, who boldly declared on March 23rd, 1775, at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia, and you can help me finish it, right? Give me liberty or give me death. So our nation as a whole, we were founded at the core as rebels. We don't want any monarch. We don't want any tyranny. And another reason why we struggle with the concept of a monarchy is because many who have wore a crown throughout history did not wear it well. They used it to oppress their subjects. They used it for self-enrichment. They used it to dismiss the needs of their subject. Like uh, it is, it is uh, a legend that, that uh, the Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, said one time when her, when her subjects were dying of starvation for lack of bread, and she uh, infamously said, let them eat cake. Like, I don't care. I got all I need, right? They were corrupt in all levels of government. So, so a resistance to a monarchy is embedded in our DNA as a nation. Again, I already said it, but we are rebels at the core. And I suppose we could argue that it has served us well politically during the 243 years of our nation's history. But I want to share something with you, a really solemn warning and a caution. It also can be a devastating disaster spiritually when we bring that same DNA into our relationship with God. Because Jesus is the king of righteous rule and he will have no rivals. So we got to grasp that ultimate meaning of the word monarchy, which is the type of rule that a king holds. So we take the word monarchy, and it's kind of a, a compound word, and it, and it starts out with mono, which means one, and then it goes to archi, which means order. Uh, and when it comes to the reign of Jesus, look at this thought. There is one ultimate source of sovereign order to life, and his name is Jesus, can you say amen? amen? So why do we need a king? Well, I can give you a lot of reasons, but let me give you one. Without a monarchy, we are often left with anarchy. And anarchy is the absence of order and the absence of government. Those of us that have read through the Bible several times, we, we get to this book called the book of Judges and we start reading about that segment of Israel's history and we're going like, seriously? I mean, defined by theologians as Israel's dark ages. Babies are slaughtered, wives are raped, daughter is burned as a sacrifice to a pagan god. There's political chaos and corruption at all levels. But why did it happen? Well, the, the book of Judges itself describes why those, one of the reasons why those things happen. It says in Judges 21 and 25, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Yeah, we need a king. But we need a king of righteous rule. On the table this morning, I have two props that I hope will help me to communicate what I believe God wants us to get out of this message this morning. First one is a crown sitting right here. It's a traditional symbol and a headgear worn by a monarch, and it represented things when they wore. Power, legitimacy, victory, triumph honor, glory. And then when you apply it to Jesus as a king, there's other things that are included that no mortal can claim, like immortality and righteousness. And of course, ultimately, resurrection from the dead. 
And then there was a scepter, which was a wand that, um, that, a, that a ruling monarch would hold in his hand or her hand, and it, and it acted as a badge of imperial authority, honor, and sovereignty. And so as we view these symbols that are on the table in front of me, I want us all to remember that no one has been, is now, or ever will be more worthy to wear a crown and carry a scepter than Jesus Christ, the King of righteous rule. Primarily the book of Revelation, if you think about it. If you think about it, it's basically about the coronation of a king. I wish I had the time to read the entire fifth chapter for you out of the book of Revelation because it basically encapsulates everything that I'm saying this morning or want to say. But I'll just lift up three verses, uh, lift out three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14. And here's what it says. And they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Lifeway Church, behold your king. Lifeway Church, behold your king. He is redeeming a world that is currently ruled by other powers. And if the truth be told, ladies and gentlemen, we all have a king. That means someone or something that holds sovereign rule over our lives, and we look to that as our provider and our protector. We give our allegiance to it, and it's often an unspoken allegiance. It might be our parents. It might be our employers, our stock options. It might be government, of all things a political party. But you know what it is most often? It's ourselves. And our loving God knows quite well the consequences of that kind of foolishness. So that is why he has been on a mission to reclaim us and bring us under his sovereign rule. Jesus, our king, and brought a, brought a new and righteous rule that isn't demonstrated by force, but as a new order of hope he died for the sins of the world. He rose again on the third day. He ascended up into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession. But it's not gonna end there. The scripture tells us that from there he will one day return and finally and ultimately claim his place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you say amen? So he, he forever lives as the ultimate king, the anointed one from God, the Messiah. The word Messiah is the transliteration of a Hebrew word, uh, Mashiach, which literally means anointed one. And when that was translated into the Greek language, they wound up with the word Christos, where we get our word Christ. So whenever we say Christ our Lord, we are acknowledging him as the anointed ruler and king of God. But the question is, if he is the anointed king of righteous rule, how does he continue to reign today? And equally, impo equally important, how can we partake in that kingly reign, in the reign of Christ? Well, in the reign of Christ, the ultimate king, sovereign over life, there's lies three things I want to share with you quickly today. Number one, the ultimate blessing of righteousness. 
the ultimate blessing of righteousness. You know what's interesting? That word righteousness and holiness and all that stuff is, uh, those words have been bounced around in the church for, for centuries. And when we think of righteousness, many of us immediately start thinking about a repressive system of do's and don'ts. We start thinking about a system that bans and outlaws anything that is enjoyable. And we're kind of reduced to concluding that, well, if it ain't sin, it's fattening and I can't do anything. But that's not the righteousness the Bible teaches. Paul said this to the church at Rome as he wrote in chapter 14, verse 17. He said, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That doesn't sound like a repressive uh, list of do's and don'ts. And Isaiah expanded upon that on, on chapter 32, verse 17. He said, and this righteousness will bring peace. Yes, it will bring quietness and confidence forever. So reduced to a simple couple of words, righteousness, in essence, is simply right relationship. It is harmony in relationships peace. When we enjoy a right relationship with God and then with others, there's peace. So we need to change our view of what righteousness implies from constraint to contentment. And as we sit here today, more than likely, I mean, I haven't seen anything on news feeds or anything, but knowing the world as it now is today, there are more than likely hostages being held somewhere. And rescue missions are being planned by one sovereign power to rescue lives being held captive by another sovereign power. Can I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that heaven is doing the very same thing for you and me today? And the practical application to all of this is this. As we appropriate the authority of the king of righteous rule, we can spread his ministry of rescuing and reconciliation reconciling members of the traitor race to their creator and functioning as a mediator between warring factions. That is our ministry. That is our calling, ladies and gentlemen. I was at a funeral yesterday. It was a very large family. And uh, knowing this family for many, many years, I was aware uh, firsthand of the fractured state between many individuals that were present. In fact, some of them wouldn't even sit on the same side of the sanctuary as the other. The message, however, overarching message throughout the entire ceremony was reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to one another. In the reign of Christ, the ultimate king and sovereign over life, there's a second thing. It, in it lies the ultimate expansion of allegiance. The nature of a kingdom is not necessarily defined by its borders, Foreign lands can be conquered like Rome did to Israel, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the captors will give allegiance to the new king, the Caesar. In fact, Israel rebelled. They refused to uh, announce that there is or, or agree and uh, that there is any king except God. The kingdom grows by all who will ultimately claim the king as their own. And in the reign of Christ as the king of righteous rule lies the ultimate expansion of allegiance. I mean, if you are part of the body of Christ this morning, that means you have surrendered your life to Jesus and you're doing your best on a daily basis to live lives that reflect his goodness and glory. You are part 
of over one billion people on this planet that are doing the same. One billion people that are doing the same, including an estimated 50 million in communist China who have given their allegiance to, to an invisible kingdom even while the visible kingdom is making them suffer for it. I had a news article I read in one of the places I go online for news articles and uh, information. It was September the 27th this year. And uh, I, I scanned through it. Most of the head, headlines don't bother me in the least, and I'm not curious in the least. But this one left, out, left off my, my screen of my computer. And, uh, and it said this. And I'm going to put it on, uh, on the screen just as I read it on the, on the Internet. Iran has world's fastest growing church despite no buildings. I mean, what do we hear about Iran every day? We can't let them get nukes. The Mullahs are ruling with, uh, with a uh, fist of iron. The, the people are, you know, protesting in the street and they're being shot and killed for. In the midst of that chaos and oppression, God is raising up an army. He's building and expanding his kingdom reign in a place where it is not conducive according to man's uh, uh, measurement of such things. In the reign of Christ as a king of righteous rule, that offers proof that this kind of allegiance while it can't be forced, you know what else it can't be? It can't be stopped. It can't, it can't be contained. It's not political. It's personal. The nature of allegiance is that it must come from a personal choice. Now, here's the practical application for you and I today. We need to declare our allegiance through our submission to the king, which is evidenced by our behavior that imitates his goodness and glory, and not just by our verbal declarations, I mean, I'm all for saying I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm there, I'm there with that. But if all we're saying is verbal declarations and our lives do not reflect that, it brings shout. As the U.S. grows increasingly secularized, the church and state have never before headed in different directions as much as they are today. But you know what? The more I understand about the kingdom of God, the less I'm worried about that trend. The focus of our energy should not be on how to Christianize the United States. We've tried that before. Anybody remember the moral majority? Now, I'm not against that. I'm not saying it was wrong. It just wasn't effective. But to work to be God's kingdom in an increasingly hostile world, that's our goal. And I believe that the church exists to establish a new order which is radically different to the world's order. But the way we contradict it in it is with a way that is full of promise, hope, and love. Ironically, if the United States truly is sliding down a slippery moral slope, you know what? That's sad. And we should not be happy about that. But you know what? That's going to allow the church, as it did in ancient Rome and as it's doing today in China and Iran, to help us to live as bright lights in a dark world. I confess there's a part of me that would prefer to live in a country where the majority of people live by the Ten Commandments, treat each other civilly, and bow their heads once a day for a bland, nonpartisan prayer. <laughs> I sometimes feel a nostalgia for the social climate of the 50s in which I grew 
up in, you know, I was born in 1950, so that was, that, that was my decade of growing up. Ozzy and Harriet. <laughs> Father knows best. The hula hoop. Oh, Lord, bring those days back again. You don't want to see me do a hula hoop now, I'm telling you. It's, <laughs> looks like I'm having a seizure, I'm telling you. It's like, but you know what? Even if that environment never returns, I'm not going to lose any sleep because as America slides, I am going to work for the kingdom of God to advance. Paul said this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He said, where sin abounds, grace even more abounds. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 14 to 16, in the great sermon on the mount, he said, you, me, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick so it might give light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Our lights shine brightest when the world is the darkest. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ladies and gentlemen, if the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, the current political scene hardly poses any threat. God's kingdom advances slowly and humbly like a covert invasion force operating within the kingdoms ruled by Satan. And that's what happened on that first Christmas morning that we celebrate in this series. The kingdom advances slowly and humbly. And on that first Christmas morning, God landed behind enemy territory and enemy lines in disguise. So much so that those that should have recognized him when he came missed him because he was in disguise. The reign of Christ does not stop here. The reign of Christ as king is the ultimate blessing of righteousness, the ultimate expansion of allegiance, and there's a third and last one, the ultimate victory over evil. Final judgment. Because Jesus is the one ultimate, one and only true king, the one sovereign who rules with righteousness, then we can expect an ultimate victory over all other powers. And that is precisely what has been predicted by the prophets, by Jesus, and also here in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Here's what it says. God overlooked people's former ignorance about these things, but now he commands everyone everywhere to turn away from idols and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. All hail, King Jesus. We can have confidence that this can happen. I mean, Stevie, you, you're kind of like those old-fashioned Christians that believe there's going to be a literal rapture and Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule uh, from the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. Yeah, it's in the Bible. I believe it. Um, I believe it. So when I became a baby, when I was a baby Christian, I got saved at almost 25 years of age in 1975. And uh, you got to realize for the first 24 and a half years of my life, I, I lived as a pagan. I had little, uh, little moments where I was exposed to Christian principles and gospel, but nothing that stuck, you know? And... Uh, 
So when my pastor would get up and preach on a Sunday morning uh, about referencing when he spent time in his prayer closet, I did not know that that was a figurative metaphor. I thought it was literal. So I went home and we had a four bedroom, two two bathroom house, two story. The second floor across from the, uh, the second bathroom was a small closet, storage closet, and it was very narrow. And the, and the ceiling sloped because there was no dormers in the second floor. So, you know, the further you got to the outside wall of the house, the more you had to kind of do one of these deals. And, uh, and I th- took everything that we stored in that closet out, found somewhere else, somewhere else for it, and I made myself a prayer closet, literal. I had a little altar. I had something to play the music when I'm having my quiet time with God, and it was actually an eight-track player, so don't judge me. Somebody really liked it. Who said yeah? Bring back the eight-track. <laughs> but I had a sign that was framed, a poster, I should say, that was framed and I put it on the wall because when I went to a Christian bookstore, uh, I saw this hanging there and just, it just hit my heart. And it was a beautiful scene of an ocean with waves crashing over the rocks and, and, and washing onto the shore. And I'm, a, I'm an ocean person. I love the, I love the ocean. And, and, that, and so, but on the, on the poster were these words, all that I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all that I have not seen. And when we bring that into this, this situation here, this context, you know what I'm saying to you today? I'm saying that we know there have been many things that have already been fulfilled. I mean, we can go to a, a 1948 when Israel was re- restored as a sovereign nation in the world. And we knew that played heavily into prophetic predictions about the end of the world. We, all these things have happened. But you know what? All that After all that has been fulfilled, we can know that all will ultimately be fulfilled. The word of God says, and in a little while, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. We can expect it because it will happen. And the rule and reign of God will be established. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. Can you say commanding shout? Now, when I was a spiritual baby, you know, uh, we didn't use anything but the King James Version because I was told if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Yeah, literally, so. But in that version, it says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Not a commanding shout or a loud command, but that's what it means in the original Greek. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, first the believers who have died will rise from their graves, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, then we will be with the Lord forever. There's three of us that are happy about that. Do you ever wonder what the loud command would be? I said, he's going to come. Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a loud command. Not just a, hey, but a specific command. We're not told what it is, but I have a feeling that Jesus already knows what it's going to be. He's just waiting. He just can't wait to say it when it's his time to come. Well, my theory can be just as valid as yours as you're making one up in your head. Because we have no reason, uh, we have no scriptures that can absolutely uh, clarify what that might be. But 
I came up with this a lot of years ago. At Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, look, it says he, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no more sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So I believe the loud command is no more. No more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more burying your loved ones. No more divorces and fractured families. No more drug addiction and disease. No more aging and declining health. No more feeling alone in the crowd or wondering what is missing in my life. I've watched my beautiful bride for the last five years suffer with uh, progressive macular degenerations where now her she is pretty much on the verge of becoming classified as legally blind. And I've watched this vibrant young lady who has so much to offer and she loves to read and, 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 and take in God's creation and every day becomes less and less able to do so. And I've watched her struggles. We buy new devices to help her to read and, and, and I'm glad to serve her in that way, but it's so sad. And we are holding out for a miracle. We, we've been she's been diagnosed with macular degeneration, but we're believing and praying every day for macular regeneration because we know that's not beyond the realm of possibility with a God who can do all things. But even if he does not, There'll come a day when Jesus will shout from heaven, no more. And instantly she'll be able to see like never before all the glories that God has prepared for her in heaven. Can you say amen? amen. But we have authority right now in certain situations. In my opinion, to command no more. We're gonna have ministry teams up here in a few minutes. And they may not use these exact words, but when we are laying hands on people, anointing them with oil, praying for them about, specifically about any need they might come for, we are basically saying no more. No more addiction. No more, no more disease. No more struggles. Jesus said in Luke 10 and 19, he said this, look, I give you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means harm you. Let me give you one example out of many, many in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts that kind of illustrates that. In the book of Acts chapter three, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And while they're entering into one of the gates into the temple court, that was called the gate beautiful, there was a guy sitting there who was lame from birth and he was begging alms. And when Peter and John walked past or towards him, he looked at Peter, he looked at the man and Peter said, look on us. And the man got excited thinking, oh, somebody finally notices me. The man who is, you know, perpetually invisible. Somebody actually sees me and he is hoping to expect and receive something from them. But Peter says, look, we're preachers. We're always broke. Silver and gold, we don't have. Ah, but what we do have, we're going to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man reached up his hand and Peter grabbed it and lifted him up. And the Bible says he leapt to his feet and ran into the temple, leaping and praising God. You know what happened there, ladies and gentlemen? In that moment and in that place and in that man's life, two anointed men of God gave a loud command, no more. No more. 
The book of Acts is filled with numerous examples of Christ followers who understood the authority they had to bring the kingdom of God to earth and they have boldly commanded no more. But there will come a day when Christ will come and bring an ultimate victory over evil. But in the meantime, we have to be sober and vigilant while we wait. Matthew 24 and 44, Jesus said to his disciples, you also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. You know, I've heard it said a lot of times, you know, people need to get ready for the coming of the Lord. And I understand that. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but I just can't find a scriptural basis for that concept. When I played in uh, my first rock band back in the mid-60s, uh, you know, you're looking at this fat ball got up here and thinking... Rock, rock band? <laughs> you think that's bad? My second rock band, which was actually the one that was more uh, successful uh, in the Philadelphia area, was called The Devil's Workshop. And I know you're not buying that. Well, we used to sing a song. It was from the Chambers Brothers. And the Chambers Brothers was an, actually a, a, a gospel group that kind of crossed over into the rock realm, you know, rhythm and blues and rock. And, and uh, one of the songs that broke through in the top 10 was People Get Ready. There's a train a-coming. Don't need no tickets. You just get on board. But you know what I find in the Bible? It doesn't say get ready. It says be ready. Get ready means it's like a process. Like, you know, I'm, I'm closer to being ready today than I was yesterday. No, you need to be ready. Be ready for in an hour that you think not, the Son of Man comes. There's an inscription on a dome of our nation's capital that I want to show you a picture of right here. Few people ever read it. I mean, thousands of people every day are milling about to and fro, even the servants of our government. And the words are from Tennyson, and, it say, and they say, one God, one law, one element, one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. And they tell me that when tour guides are asked what this means, they say it points to the second coming of Christ. So that means when the capital was being erected, some God-fearing official ordered those words to be etched into the dome, obviously believing the second coming of Christ is an important truth for our nation this is a reminder of how unaware and unprepared most of us are. I mean, all the shenanigans that are going on in, in, in the Capitol these days, right? And they're walking under that every day. One far-off event that all of creation moves. It's like they're oblivious. They're not affected by the fact that Christ will come at any moment, and that's why they will be caught off unaware. Ladies and gentlemen, to be truthful... The simple truth is that there are consequences to our allegiance. Who's your king? Know this, the king has come. He left all the glory and splendor and perks of heaven, removed his royal garment just to identify with us, and in so doing, he didn't become less of a king, he became more of a king. But also in so doing, he calls for our allegiance. He came announcing a change in regimes, a regime change. 
And that's an apt description for what has to occur in every person sitting in this room as they turn over control of their lives to Christ. And why this is important is the last point I'll throw up on the screen for you. When we allow him to rule over us, he then can then rule through us. I want you to stand with me this morning. And I'm so grateful that you came to Lifeway this morning. I want to ask you all to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer as we wrap this service up. I want, as you're bowed and praying with me, can I ask you a couple of questions? Is this the day when you truly decide to make Jesus the king of righteous rule in your life? Is today the day when you are no longer concerned about living like a king, but for a king? Father God, move upon the hearts of the people here by your Holy Spirit, and particularly touch those who are not ready to meet you when you come. Help them to make a bold declaration of their allegiance, not because they have spoken the words but because they have yielded their lives. While your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if there's one here today that says, you know what, this is the day. I've been, I've been toying about, around and about this issue, and, but now I'm ready to take that step of faith. I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I'm ready to make him king of my life. Not just a cute little romantic figure in a nativity scene in my front yard or on my, under my Christmas tree, but a king of righteous rule that reigns from the throne of my heart. If you're here today with eyes closed and heads bowed and you're ready to do that, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand up and say, Steve, that's me today. I'm ready to make that commitment to Jesus Christ. Go ahead and raise your hand today. Raise it up high so we can see it. And how about the rest of us? I would venture to say that the majority of the people in this room have a savior, but I wonder how many of us have a Lord, an anointed one that has assumed rulership in our lives as we have yielded to him the throne of our hearts. Or maybe you thought, maybe you've already done that and that's kind of like, something that's already there, but you want to take it to the next level. You know, this is, a, this is not a once and done thing. This is something that progresses throughout life. And I want to take my surrender to the Lordship to Christ to the next level this morning. I want it to become more radical where he governs not just what I do on Sunday morning at 1045, but he governs my choices, my speech, the handling of my finances, the way I treat my family, all of the above, how I, I, how I uh, function as an employee or how I function as an employer. I'm ready to take the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life to the next level. If that's you this morning, raise your hand up right now. God bless you. God bless you. Pray this after me, if you would, everyone. Everyone join me, please. Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. It really is a two-edged sword. 
It has cut a little bit today, but only because I needed it. You love me this much to send me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I confess my sins to you and ask you to forgive me of my sins. Make me born again. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me, O oh Father. And right now, I dethrone me and I enthrone you on the throne of my heart. For you, Jesus, are the king of righteous rule. Help me to live every day from this day forward, totally sold out, totally surrendered, so that one day, when you come back, I will be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Give the Lord a praise offering, hallelujah. Oh, hail King Jesus.